This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today we're continuing in our latest series called Saved. For those of you just jumping in for the first time, we've been exploring the book of Ephesians together, verse by verse, one chapter at a time. And we're looking at what it means to live a saved life, a life that is fully loved, graced, reconciled, unified, made alive, raised up, and seated with Christ in heavenly places. If you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be reading from verses 11 through 22. So let's jump right in, beginning with verse 11. And here's what it says. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Picking right up from where we ended last week, Paul here in speaking to the church at Ephesus through his letter written to them from prison in verse 11 is reminding us as the people of God where we come from. He says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, Gentiles meaning non-Jews or non-covenantal people, were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Okay, for those of you unfamiliar with the term circumcision and what it had to do with Jewish identity as God's people, let me remind you that in the Old Testament when God chose Abraham and his offspring to represent him in the earth, he entered into a covenant with them with circumcision being the physical sign of human adherence to it. By way of circumcision, or the cutting of the flesh and the spilling of the blood that took place, God's people demonstrated their faithful obedience to enter into, uphold, and abide by this covenant. Now, let me pause right here, because I recognize for some people out there, this might all seem a bit strange, and I get it. It is strange, especially to Western 21st century ears. But in the ancient Near East, thousands of years ago, covenants were a significant and primary way of life. And they were all sorts of different covenants that people entered into. There are all sorts of different kinds. A covenant was a formal agreement that brought about a relationship of commitment between two parties. Covenants were often used to solidify or express friendship. They show up in strategic alliances as well as treaties between conflicting parties and tribes, even nations. And what makes a covenant different from a simple contract or another binding agreement is that a covenant always implies a meaningful relationship between both parties. The most common covenant in the ancient Near East was the Suceran Vassal Treaty, which usually contained the following components. I'm going to frame this for you. A preamble, which identified the covenant giver, historical prologues, stipulations, meaning what you're going to do and what the king will provide, a provision and a public reading of the covenant itself, a long list of witnesses, a series of blessings and curses that would happen if the covenant was upheld or not, and a ratification ceremony, usually where an animal was split into two halves or sacrificed. This is actually where we get the phrase to cut a covenant from. More specifically, when ancient tribes formed alliances with other tribes, they would cut a covenant with each other by sacrificing an animal, usually a sheep, a bull, or a donkey, which would signify the promise from both parties to uphold their part of the agreement. Now, as a result, a tearing of flesh 
and the spilling of blood were almost always involved. Both acts were highly symbolic of the value and sacredness of the covenant being formed, primarily because it cost a living animal its life. And back then, due to the agrarian culture that they lived in, animals were both highly valued and extremely costly. Are you tracking with me? Okay. So, it's against this backdrop that God accommodates man right where he's at. And this is going to be key for us. And he does so within man's own culture and practices, and he enters into a covenant with man. He does this to show his love and his commitment to sinful human beings like you and me. And we see this first and foremost with Noah in Genesis chapter 6, verse 18. God says, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. The Hebrew word for covenant here is bereath, and it signifies an agreement that demonstrates God's own faithful commitment to his people. In this case, it signifies God's commitment to save Noah and his family from the flood. And this is more clearly demonstrated in the language of its aftermath. Genesis chapter 8, we see this, verse 20 through 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And so here you have this preamble we talked about. God is the covenant giver. We have historical prologues, what Noah did in building an altar. We have stipulations. God says, I'll never again curse the ground, nor will I ever strike down any more living creatures. You have a public reading and a rem remembrance of this covenant being passed down through Israel's oral and eventual written history. And then there's this word about blessings and curses that are no more. The earth will yield forth seed time and harvest, it says, and the seasons will not cease. And then lastly, a ratification ceremony being the burnt offerings of these animals that take place upon that altar. Do you see what's happening here? There's an interesting thing that I want to note that I think is crucial for us in understanding the power and significance of covenant. Notice that God meets man right where he's at. As I said just a few moments ago, he accommodates man. And this is what separates the God of the Bible from every other God or religion we see in the world today. In all other religions, man has to do something to get to God. He has to maintain some sort of disciplined life or accomplish a series of good works. He has to climb some sort of spiritual ladder to get to God or to appease the, the deities, right? But from the very start of it all, in the Bible, we see the God of the Bible coming to man we see God blessing man, God saving man, God gracing man. And it doesn't stop with Noah. We see this in God's choosing of the man Abram. This happens in Genesis chapter 12 where God establishes his covenant with Abram to bless him and his seed and to make him into a great nation, to be a blessing to other nations and to curse those who curse him. We call this the Abrahamic covenant. And this is a really important covenant for us. God reaffirms his covenant with Abram again and again all throughout Genesis. We see this in Genesis 15, where he tells him that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars. He makes a promise about his heir and the inheritance of the land that God will provide for his people. 
Abram sacrifices some animals and God in what the text calls a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passes through the pieces or the, the cut halves of these animals. And in doing so, God is demonstrating that he himself will uphold this covenant. Then later on in Genesis 17, God reaffirms this covenant with Abraham yet again, this time changing his name to Abraham and now placing upon him certain stipulations that he wants him to uphold by abiding within the covenant. And instead of animals being cut and torn, God asks Abraham and his sons to, you guessed it, circumcise themselves. Now, all the men right now are wincing in pain, and rightfully so. But the truth is, whereas in the past God carried the covenant himself and swore by himself and passed through the pieces by himself, God was now wanting Abraham, through the act of circumcision, to carry the covenant in his own flesh as a forever reminder of God's forever promise. Are you with me? Genesis 17 verse 13 says it this way, So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. This covenant that Abraham now carried, he carried by way of his own flesh and blood. And it's upon this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, that God would build all future covenants with both Israel and by faith, those not of Israel, what Paul is referring to here in Ephesians chapter 2 as these Gentiles, those not of the circumcision. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's saying, you and I were once alienated, in other words, cut off from and distant to all these covenants of promise. So what covenants are we talking about? Well, obviously the Abrahamic covenant for sure, but also the Mosaic covenant, which was given to the people of God there at Mount Sinai after God's people were rescued from Egypt. We see this play out in Exodus chapters 19 through 24. It's here that God now calls his people a priestly nation with the intended goal being to carry God's own identity and purposes and plans out into the world. So no longer are Abraham's descendants just a clan or a tribe. They are now being formed into a great nation with an important national identity and purpose for their being. Later in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, we see exactly what that purpose is. He says, I will make you a light to the Gentiles, and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So what's the purpose? Well, salvation itself. And who is it for? Everybody. Jews, Gentiles, and all the peoples to the ends of the earth. And so Paul says, remember, you were once cut off and distant to all these promises and covenants. And because of that fact, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. In other words, you lived a hopeless and a godless life. Maybe you've been watching today and that's exactly how you feel right now, without hope. And you feel like God is distant to you. In just a few moments, I want to give you an opportunity to begin a brand new relationship with this amazing God who meets people right where they're at. A God that brings hope and salvation with him. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now, meaning, but that old way of life, a life without hope, a life without God is over. And it's done with because 
of what Christ Jesus has done. Because of Jesus, you and I, who were once far off and alienated and strangers, have been brought near by the shedding of his own blood. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, this spotless lamb, because of Jesus' own body being pierced and torn, and his own blood being spilled for you on that cross, you and I have been brought into a new covenant with him. A covenant that's built on all the promises of those first covenants, like the one given to Abraham. An everlasting covenant that fulfills and accomplishes all the other covenants that preceded it. A covenant that I believe cannot be broken. You guys, this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus would come to fulfill every promise and every covenant given to God's people. And in doing so, he binds himself to us by way of his own blameless life and his perfect sacrifice. It's God passing between the pieces of his good son's perfect body broken for you and his perfect blood shed for you that you and I can rest assured that God's commitment to us will never fail. He is the God that so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, only an everlasting covenant with an everlasting God can provide you with everlasting life. There's no other way to obtain that. That is the truth of the matter, regardless of how some people today want to interpret it. Now, you can look to self-help gurus, and you can look to social media influencers all you want, but you won't find what you're looking for there. You know why? Because what you're actually looking for can only be found in a covenantal and meaningful relationship with Jesus. I assure you, you can climb the highest mountains, you can traverse the deepest depths, but you'll come up empty every time because only in Christ Jesus will you and I find life's greatest meaning and joy. About a year ago, I had a conversation with a man that self-identified as an agnostic, and he proceeded to tell me all about his life's exploits and pursuits, all the ways in which he was having fun and partying up with people from all over the world, and it sounded kind of interesting. But at some point, I had to stop the man, and I told him, I said, listen, that all sounds great and everything, but why are you here? Like, what's the real purpose for your life. And he stopped. He said, you know what? I don't really know. I don't really have an answer for that right now. And I proceeded to tell him why I thought a life following Jesus actually answers most, if not all, of those questions and provides a life rich in meaning and purpose and substance. And I invited him to consider it. Friends, that's so many people living today. So many people are getting caught up in doing their own thing and just partying and having fun that they don't ever really stop to consider what the point of it all is. I mean, in this sense, they're just like the people Paul says here are without hope and without God in the world. People separated and alienated from Christ. People that are strangers to these promises and these covenants that we're talking about today. Church, I believe this. I believe it's time for the people of God to rise up and to get with the program. It's time to get the word out about what God is doing in the earth right now. It's time to invite people to consider their life and to consider what Jesus says about it. And what an amazing opportunity we've been given right now because of this COVID-19 situation. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Friends, Jesus is our peace. He doesn't just provide us peace. He is our peace. Right now, people are looking for peace, but they can't and they won't find it because peace can only be found in a person in the person of Jesus Christ himself. With all the turmoil surrounding this current election and what's happening in our world right now, I believe people need Jesus. 
They need the peace that surpasses all understanding. They need a peace that is everlasting. And only one person meets the criteria of being able to provide that peace. And that is Jesus himself, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Not only is Jesus our peace, Jesus is our reconciliation. He is our unity. And because of what he's done on that cross for you and for me, unity and reconciliation is already ours. In other words, it's already been accomplished. Dividing walls of race or ethnicity or culture or generations or tribes or treaties cannot stand against what Christ has already accomplished on that cross for us. Racism cannot stand against what Christ has already done. So whether you believe that black lives matter or all lives matter, it's irrelevant because Christ has already demolished every distinction and characterization that we make in him, in his own body. There are no dividing walls of hostility. So if you're feeling pressured toward hostility or toward becoming hostile toward another person or believer because of their politics or classifications or ideologies or Facebook posting. Stop it. Jesus has already won this battle, meaning you have nothing left to prove. Jesus has already reconciled all things to himself. Colossians chapter 1 verses 19 through 20 says this, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. Friends, Jesus has already accomplished our reconciliation, meaning all you have to do is believe it and walk in it. Verses 15 and 16, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. By abolishing, from the Greek word here meaning to put an end to, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. The word ordinances here is literally where we get the word dogma from. This isn't referring to the Torah or the Ten Commandments, but rather to dogmatic teaching created around God's word. So Jesus puts an end to these ordinances, these dogmatic decrees about who's in and who's out who's Jewish enough and who's still a Gentile, by creating in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Here's what he's getting at. A new man is not concerned with the ordinances or dogmas of old because those things have already been fulfilled by Jesus, whereby Jesus is the fulfillment of all the commandments and the Torah and the writings and the prophets and all the covenants that proceeded from them. So that in himself, in his own flesh, in his own body, he could create a new kind of humanity. What the text here calls one new man in place of the two. A reconciled and healed and restored humanity where hostility and division and strife must cease. Friends, this is good news about what Jesus has already done for us. It's not something that we still have to achieve or try to earn. As we saw last week, it's something given to us by grace through faith in him through Christ's own body being pierced and torn on that cross we have unity and reconciliation in him that's why apart from Christ all we have is sociology books and human reasoning and philosophy and government to try and make sense of what's going on in our world and it's failing us miserably because 
Politics and sociology were never meant to solve issues pertaining to the heart. They never could and they never will. No matter how much we protest or speak out or riot, it's not going to change what only God can change in us. And that is our hearts. And that means that being reconciled first and foremost to Him is the central and most important activity that we should be concerned with right now. Regardless of what CNN or Fox News or even NPR says about us, amen? Verses 17 and 18. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. Because Christ is our peace, he comes preaching and bringing peace, both to those that were far off, that was all of us, and to those who were by covenant already near. For through Jesus, verse 18 says, we both have access in one spirit, say it with me, one spirit, one spirit to the same Father. There's no longer any distinction or separation or alienation in Christ. We've been granted the same access in one spirit to the same Father by one spirit. Because of the presence and power of his Holy Spirit at work within us, we have access to God, which is amazing and should absolutely blow our minds. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 16, and the NLT says this, So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are in fact God's children. It is because of the Spirit's work within us, church, that we now can even call God Father. We are adopted into His family and we are made His kids because His Spirit has now joined with our spirit to affirm this reality. As I said, this is so amazing and it means that we have unrestricted access to Him. Years ago when my kids were still little, they used to run into my room and jump right up onto my lap. If I was sitting or laying down on the bed, they would climb and crawl all over me and they were just completely uninhibited about it. Oftentimes they would interrupt what I was doing to ask me silly questions about things that they were thinking about, you know, silly toddler things that they had on their heart or mind. And that image of my children doing this is going to be forever burned into my brain because I believe that's the way it's supposed to be with us and God. We, because of what Christ has done and the work of his spirit within us, can approach God the same way because we have unrestricted access to him. We can come boldly before him and jump up onto his lap, crying out Abba, which is an Aramaic term for daddy or papa. We can approach God as a loving father or papa because that's exactly what he is. We just didn't know it before. Friends, when you really grab a hold of this, it removes all condemnation and shame and guilt. It removes burden and striving and hostility. It brings peace and unity and the security of knowing that your heart is safe with his. And that's what Paul is saying to his church here at Ephesus and to all of us today. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Friends, you are no longer strangers no longer aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints or the holy ones of God's own household. This is so cool. Once again, we who are lost and cut off from Christ in darkness, alienated from the promises and the covenants and having now been brought in, we've been made to be the people of his own household. In other words, we're family. Church, 
That's what we are. Say it with me. We are family. That's right. And as a result, we should make it our aim to make others feel a part of his family too. Maybe you came from a broken family or a messed up home life, or maybe you had great parents who raised you right and loved you properly. In either case, I believe that God wants you to know this. He wants you to know and to feel the power of family. At Courageous Church, one of our core values is a courageous life shared with a loving family. We believe that church should feel like family again. Maybe you grew up in a religious environment that never ever came close to feeling like family. We want to change that. We want you to know the power of a community that feels like home, a place where you can both believe and belong and rest in the security of knowing that your heart is safe with his. Verses 20 and 21, being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Beloved, Courageous Church is not built on a personality. It's not built on Pastor Jason or Candace and our charismatic giftings. No, it's not even built on our articles of incorporation or bylaws. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets that have gone before us. Namely, Jesus himself, our great rock and cornerstone and redeemer, the one on whom the whole structure, the text here says, depends. It's all of us being joined together, being brought into unity with each other and growing together in love. That God is building his church, what the text here calls a holy temple. Yes, it's, it's true that you individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But it's actually more true, or truer, if I could say it this way, that all of us collectively, as the text says here, being joined together, actually more fully reflect being God's temple when we're together. Meaning... The church cannot be the church by itself. I know that might sound contradictory to what you might have been told or what even people are saying right now, but the church is not really the church without us being joined together. We see this here and in 1 Peter chapter 2. We see, just like Israel, that we are called a holy priesthood, a chosen people. The emphasis being on our corporate identity, not on our individual ones. We also see it in Hebrews chapter 10 where we are encouraged to not forsake gathering together as some are in the habit of doing so. Now, the scriptures don't give us a formula or a, a perfect picture of what that's supposed to look like every time and in every context or setting, but we can see and derive from the book of Acts, for example, that the church met in temple courts and from house to house, meaning it's both and not either or. So don't get pulled into foolish arguments or quarreling over what form or way of doing church is the right one. The truth is the early church met together secretly and publicly. They did so underground and they did so above ground. They did so in houses and they did so in synagogues and courtyards and amphitheaters. So beware of people that say it has to be their way only. Those people end up making themselves out to be authorities over what we see in Scripture. And finally, verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What's the ultimate goal for our lives? The ultimate goal is this, that we would become a dwelling place for God's Spirit. That we, that's us together with others, people who are and were just like us, who were once cut off and alienated from God, that we would being brought close because of the blood of Jesus, being built up in unity and in reconciliation together, become his holy habitation on this earth. That's ultimately what we're after today. 
God doesn't want there to be any barrier between us. He doesn't want there to be any more hostility. He never did. The laws that were created to display his character and his nature were designed to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we could rightfully see our great need for him. And those have now all been fulfilled and accomplished by Christ. Hallelujah. Christ has accomplished our unity. Christ has accomplished our peace. Christ has accomplished our reconciliation. Christ has accomplished our atonement. Christ has accomplished our desire and need for justice. Christ has accomplished it all. And because of him, we can walk in that reality today too. We can know peace because Christ is our peace. We can be unified and in unity because Christ is our unity. We can walk in reconciliation with people that don't look like us or think the same way because Christ is our reconciliation. We can forgive others because Christ is our forgiveness. We can bless others because Christ is our blessing. Church, this is the beauty of our God and why we worship him. If we could, for just a moment, grab a hold of this reality, perhaps we'd love each other differently. Perhaps we'd stop bickering with our friends and neighbors over issues that don't really matter and that aren't really going to matter a couple years from now. Perhaps we'd be willing to extend grace and mercy because we've been given so much grace and mercy. And perhaps we'd want to share the saving knowledge of this relationship that we have with him with those that don't know him yet. And to do so like never before. Friends, maybe you've been watching or listening to this message today and you don't know Jesus. I want to give you the opportunity to get to know him and to be filled with his spirit right now. And that begins, I believe, with you saying yes to him. You responding to the call to love, follow, and serve Jesus all the days of your life. At Courageous Church, this is our chief desire. This is our mandate and our mission to equip and empower people to do just that and to do it courageously. And so I want to invite you to pray this simple prayer with me. And it goes like this, Jesus, Savior, save me. Save me from myself. Save me from the things that have kept me bound. I believe and confess that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died on that cross for me to bring me close. And I believe that God raised you to life again. Jesus, I ask that you would give me a new life of freedom and hope in you. That you would fill me with your Holy Spirit all the days of my life and make all things new. And if you just prayed that with us, we want to say welcome to the family and we want to know about your decision today. We'd love to help you get connected either here at Courageous Church or wherever you're watching from as well. You can go to CourageousChurch.com to fill out what we like to call a digital connect card. This will help our team know how to best follow up with you in the days ahead and to pray for you as well. We also want to help you as you begin your new faith journey in sending you a Bible and helping you to take some new faith steps. For those of you that are local, that are here in the Salt Lake Valley, one of the best things that you can do right now is to jump, that's right, jump into one of our watch parties at our website, CourageousChurch.com. We've posted different links to watch parties that you can be a part of. As always, if Courageous Church is your home church, we want to remind you to be a generous and a courageous giver. Your courageous generosity allows us to reach so many people with the hope, healing, courage, and life of God. It allows us to advance God's good mission for all the people of Salt Lake City, the Mountain West, and beyond. That's our vision. And if you want to be a part of what God is doing with this church to make a difference today, you can use one of those links that we've posted right there in the comment section, or just head on over to CourageousChurch.com giving to give online. We want to say thank you for your love and support. 
as always, we want you to know that we love you and we are committed to you. We are committed to praying for you because you are God's masterpiece. You are his handiwork. You are his best. So remember, be strong and courageous. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at courageouschurch.com.